0: Today's podcast is brought to you by Something Blue by Anita Kay, specializing in wedding and event photography. Visit her page on Facebook. For those in love, capture those memories with Something Blue by Anita Kay. It's
1: really big. It's getting bigger and bigger. And bigger kind of this has got to be much, much, much bigger. The biggest boom. This is probably the biggest thing I ever got into. That's big, big, big.
0: The Unbridled Enthusiasm Podcast with Mark Pulos starts now. We can't give him this much power in the cartoon world. The podcast, and I was told that if I did your podcast that I would, you know, advance to the next level.
1: And we're podcasting and photographizing in front of the great The worst gigs of their life are are because of Mark (laughs) Pulos. Anyone want a husband? Free free to a home. Now it doesn't even have to be a good home. Just free to a home. Ladies and gentlemen, Andre the Giant would like to do his impression of Willie Nelson. Suck yourself dry! Oh all right.
0: Hello, folks, and welcome back to the Unbridled Enthusiasm podcast. I'm your host, Mark Poulos, and it's good to be back. Uh, Today on the episode, I feel like a lot of times I've already covered these stories, but I don't think I've ever presented them all together in one full podcast. And uh, talking to another comic at the club last night, and knowing there's an extra piece to the story now, um, I figured I would just do a full podcast on my... uh, Long and lengthy relationship with Lisa Lampanelli. So back in 2004, I was working with a Funny Business Comedy, um, their booking agency out of Michigan, and they had a room for a while in Rochester, New York. It was uh, a week-long club run by this guy named JJ, and there was whispers. That he was connected quotation marks to uh, Mafia and such. anyways, so the uh, the preface to the story is uh, I had done I had done some road tours up until that point. I'd done some road gigs um, I covered my uh my month on the road back in 2001 for Tribble in a different podcast. But I hadn't really, up until that point, I think, driven that far for a comedy club. Because this was like, this was a one-off deal. You know, it was, it was just out and back. I was going to Rochester, New York, and then I was just coming back home. And <clears throat> the, uh, the caveat of it was that I think this was also the first time that would, I, I was going to be opening for somebody famous or someone that had some, some fame, you know. If you remember back in 2004, Lisa Lampanelli hadn't really exploded onto the scene as far as the the roasts and such on Comedy Central. She had had a a bunch of comedy specials already and obviously had a lot of heat behind her. And uh, it was definitely something I was really looking forward to. So I made the trek out there. I think the drive from Minnesota to Rochester was uh, something like 19 hours or something like that. And I remember, I I feel like it was fall, it was like November or or something like that. So I got out there, um, met the people at the club, they were all nice, I got the keys to the condo, checked into the condo, and then I came down that night for the first show, which was Wednesday night, and uh, back in 2004 I was still doing guitar comedy, to film my, uh, my 30 minutes. And I think, I think I was only getting paid like $400 to do the week. And the amount of money and gas just for a 19 hour drive out there and back was astronomical as much as my food and everything like that. You know, it was like, I had to I had to sell merchandise at that point to even stay alive as a comedian. And so when I got out there, I got to the show and I I set up my guitar on stage. I put out my my shirts on the stool. And then I just kind of sat back in the back of the room just waiting for the people to come in. And then I saw this lady come in and she started putting little cards on all the tables, um, and she was walking around. She didn't look anything like uh, the picture on the posters and stuff, but I kind of assumed it was Lisa Lampanelli, um, but I didn't want to bother her. You know, She looked like she was in pre-show mode at that time. So she went on stage. She saw the guitar. She saw my merchandise, and she immediately... Uh, walked into the manager's office and about, I don't know, maybe five minutes later she came out and the manager came over to me and he said, can, can you come into my office? We have to talk about a few things. So I was like, okay. So I head into the office. He sits me down and he says, hey, look, um, he goes, a few things. First of all, Lisa doesn't want you playing guitar in front of her. So, You can wrap that up and put it in your car. You're not going to be using it this week. And I was like, okay. And he goes, and Lisa wants to do like an hour and 10 minutes. So you're just going to be doing uh, 20 minutes. So I was like, all right, fine. And then he said, lastly, which was like a dagger to my heart, he said... And she's not gonna allow you to sell merchandise this week, so pack that up and put it in your car, also. And at that point, after I was told those three things, like she could have been the nicest person in the world, but I had absolutely no interest in spending a minute of time with her. Because I don't, you know, from my point of view, the worst thing that you can do to a comedian is tell them that they can't sell merchandise. I mean, when you realize, the ups and downs of this business and if you think about this think about this uh, back in nineteen eighty when comedy started uh, well I mean right around that time <clears throat> if you went to a week-long club as a comedian the MC's were getting paid something like six hundred for the week the feature acts were getting paid like a thousand for the week and the headliners were getting around like, th- you know, three to whatever, you know, the sky's the limit. Flash forward uh, 25 years. The MCs at a comedy club are getting paid $250 for the week. The feature X, depending on where you're at, uh, can make anywhere from uh, $300 to $800 to middle. And the headliners, once again, it's like sky's the limit. But if you're just a low level headliner, you get uh, like a thousand to fifteen hundred for the week. So to expect a feature act or an MC to make a living on that money week to week, and you know, because they don't pay for our travel, they don't pay for our food. Sometimes the clubs will give us free food discounts on drinks, Uh, you know, sometimes they have coordinations with restaurants and things in town where you'll get a discount, but we're pretty much on our own for paying for everything. So if you think about that, let's say a feature act is working in, I don't know, Milwaukee, and they live in Minnesota. It's a five-hour drive both ways. So you're talking uh, like 80 bucks in gas. Three days in Milwaukee, uh, on an average, you know, let's say you're eating at McDonald's, that's $6 a meal, you know, three meals a day, that's like another 60 bucks. So it's like right out the door, you know, you're you're in quite a bit of money and you've already taken out quite a chunk of that $400 bucks you are going to be making that weekend. So you have to sell merchandise. So when a headliner says you can't sell merchandise, they're literally from my point of view, taking money out of your wallet. Because just to not have that opportunity to sell, like I'm completely fine with selling in the parking lot or, uh, you know, selling over here, selling over there, not doing as long of a merch pitch on stage, just maybe showing it real quick or just making a comment that you have things for sale after the show, come and see me after the show. Like, I'm fine with the little restraints, but the all-out saying that you can't sell at all is a horrible thing. So I didn't want to meet her. I had no interest in watching her set whatsoever. So I did my first set, and this was the other caveat. is She's really filthy. If you don't know Lisa Lampanelli, it is like all fucks and comes and cocks. And she's very uh, Don Rickles-ish. She... Attacks the crowd, she she plays on racial stereotypes, and uh, she's really edgy. So they told me that I had to be squeaky clean in front of her because she wanted the shock factor of being the filthy person. So I said, that's fine. And a lot of times what people don't know is when a headliner says to a feature act, be clean, it's kind of a code word for go up there and suck because they, they assume, and it's a good assumption, that the majority of comedians that work the road right now can't be clean and also be as funny as they are when they're dirty. I, of course, I feel like I'm the exception to that. Like I feel like I have jokes that are squeaky clean that are, that are as good as my uncensored material, but that's just me. So that first show, I did 20 minutes. Really good set. I had a really good set. And she went up after me. And she had a real tough time. And I think the reason that she had a tough time was that she was being really filthy. And I had just been really clean. And it was a shock, which is what she wanted. But people were, like, overly shocked. And it took a bit for them to kind of settle in and regulate, sorry, got that morning gunk. So after about 20 minutes, she kind of gets them and and everything's fine. So I come in the next night, the manager pulls me into his office and he said that uh, Lisa's working on some stuff, so she wants to do an hour and 15 tonight so you'll only be doing 15 minutes. So I'm like, all right, you know what? Fuck off. Like, what's going on? So now literally me and the MC are doing the exact amount of time. He's doing 15, I'm doing 15, and she's doing an hour 15. Do my set, and now that it's even more compact, it's even better than the night before because I cut out even more of the, the loose ends and just just pounding it. so uh, do that show and uh, and then Friday comes so I come in Friday early show and I'm sitting in the back of the room and I'm waiting for the show to start and I see this Rochester comedian come in who I know, I've met him he starts talking to Lisa Lampanelli They're hugging, they're laughing, they're high-fiving. And I literally turned to the MC at that moment and I said, I have a prediction for you. And he goes, what's that? And I said, tonight I'm either going to be cut down to like five minutes and this guy that just came in is going to take over my spot in the show or I'm just going to be outright fired and be replaced by this guy. And he goes, what makes you say that? And I'm like, it's obvious that they're friends. And it's obvious that he's not working this weekend because it's Friday. And so anyways, I, I they start the show and then I go on stage. And every show that week, I was starting with the exact same joke. And it's a joke that's on my first album. It was a joke about how I loved drinking Jack Daniels. But if you're going to go out drinking Jack Daniels, you need to have a different conversation with yourself at the front door. Like, if you're just going out with drinks with friends, it's a pretty quick conversation. You're like, keys, wallet, phone, I'm good to go. And when you're going to drink Jack Daniels, it's a longer conversation. You have to be like, wallet, keys, phone, bail money, knife, ninja stars. Like, I'd go down this huge list of things. Then I'd get done with that, and I'd say, where are my Jack Daniels drinkers? and like, usually only two guys would just lose their mind clapping and cheering. And then I would say, oh, I guess everybody else is home with bracelets on their ankles, you know, like they're on house arrest. So I had watched Lisa's show all week and about 40, 40 minutes into her act, she would talk to a black man in the audience. And at some point she would make the comment uh how are you even here right now aren't you only supposed to be a certain amount of distance from your home monitoring system isn't your ankle bracelet going off or something like that i didn't think anything of it i didn't think it was that big of a crossover and i started the show the first day doing that joke not knowing that she did a joke about someone being on house arrest but whatever. Didn't seem to be a problem Wednesday and Thursday. So I do that joke. She's standing in the back of the room, and she loses her mind. She thinks that I'm doing one of her jokes just to fuck her. And I wasn't. It was my joke, and I'd done it all week. So I do that joke, and then I just see everyone in the back of the room like waving their arms and light, uh, turning flashlights and lights on, and I'm like what the fuck is going on back there? And then the MC crawls up the stairs next to the stage and he goes, get off. And I'm like, what? And he goes, get off stage. And I thought there was like some kind of an emergency or something going on. So I did, uh, one more quick joke. And then I said, thank you. Uh, here's your MC. And I got off stage And the manager, like, immediately pulls me into his office, and I was like, what's going on? And he goes, go back to the condo, and uh, I'm going to call you in a bit, and we're going to have a talk. And I was like, what? No, let's just talk right here. And he's like, it's too busy right now. I got too much shit going on. I can't talk to you right now. Go back to the condo, and I'll call you in a bit. And I'm like, all right. So I left, I went back to the condo and I sat there for a bit and I called Funny Business because I knew what was going on. I knew they were going to fire me, but I I didn't really know why. It was really weird, like I didn't get it right off. So I sat there for about an hour and uh, I called Funny Business, the company that booked me and I told them what was going on. They didn't answer. I left a message and I finally just decided, I'm like, if I sit here in this condo, they're going to fire me and send me home. And I'm not going to get any money. So I said, fuck that. I got back in my car. I drove over to the comedy club. And I went up to the manager. And I'm like, let's talk about this now. So he's like, fine, let's go. And we went into the office. And uh, he goes, let's call JJ, who is the owner. So JJ gets on the phone. And I'm like, what's going on? And he goes, "He goes, you didn't just do one of her jokes just to fuck her? And I go, what are you talking about? And he goes, ankle bracelet you didn't just say ankle bracelet to fucker and I'm like I don't know what's going on I'm like I did I've done that joke all week it's on my comedy album I wrote it years ago I'm like blah 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 and then he's like uh you've been sulking around the comedy club like a little fucker the whole week when she told you you couldn't sell merchandise he's like you didn't even go up and say hi to her once this week and I was just like fucking done with it I go No, I didn't, because I think she's a fucking bitch, and I don't want to talk to her. And then my time gets cut every show, and now I'm getting fired. I mean, it's just fucking bullshit. So he's like, uh, so I said, can I just get my money so I can go home? And he goes, well, you only did half the week, so you only get half your money. And I was like, fuck that shit. I was like, if you're firing me over ankle bracelet, write me my full check right now. And he hemmed and hawed about it, and he was like, fine, just write him the full check. And then he hung up, and and I felt bad because the manager seemed like a really cool guy, and I was like, you know, I'm really sorry, Tony, about all this. I go, I love your club, and I'm sorry this didn't work out. And he was like, no, man, we think you're great. Love all your stuff. He's like, do you want to come back in a couple months and open for Jimmy Schubert? And I was like, what? All right. Like It was such a curveball. But I took my check and I, and I drove the 19 hours home and just like it was a horrible drive home. I'm driving home on you know, Friday night and I'm just like, what a horrible week. I went back a couple months later and I opened for Jimmy Schubert who was like an amazing guy. And uh, the same show I got fired the time before, they had must have told him what had happened the last time I was there because I got off stage on that Friday show and he goes, "You're fired." And I was like, "What are you talking about?" And he goes, "You said a joke about midgets, and those are that I do jokes about midgets. You're fired." And I was like, "What?" And then everybody just started laughing, and I was like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> but uh, the Jimmy Schubert stories—that'll be uh, another podcast. So, anyways, that whole situation just. It was always a thorn in my side because it's the only time I've ever been fired in the 15 years that I've done comedy. The only time. And it really stuck with me, you know, because anytime you get fired from anything, it kind of sticks with you, you know. And it just was a thorn in my side for years. So flash forward to about, uh, it was like 2009 or 2010. I had uh, I had worked for a club in Tucson, Arizona called uh, Laugh's, and uh, it changed hands a couple times with different owners, and there was a year where I was kind of trying to, you know, reestablish relationships with places that I hadn't been in a while, you know, so I was reaching out to places. I was doing a lot of, I was headlining a lot at that time, but... That year, I decided to go into places just as a feature, just to kind of get my feet back into a few places and show them what I could do and maybe get a headline spot out of it. So I called Tucson, and they hired me to feature for this guy Eric Page out of L.A. It was just a Friday-Saturday, and uh, so I showed up, and that Friday... Um, they told me what room the other comic was in, so I called him up, we chatted for a bit, and then we, uh, decided to ride to the show together that night. So it was two shows on Friday, so the first show happens, and Tucson is, like, an amazing crowd, like, they're just so into comedy, and just so crazy for comedy, and they like it rough, and they like it kind of bar-style, dirty comedy, so... I gave them what they wanted and just, like, destroyed. So this uh, Eric guy goes up there, and his style is more of, like, a Todd Berry or a Stephen Wright, where it's, like, very kind of quiet and reserved and very intellectual. And he walked, like, I think there was, like, 150 people in the room. He walked probably, like, 80 of them that show because they just didn't think it was funny. So between shows we're both eating dinner at the bar and the owner of the club comes over and he kind of stands between us and puts his arms on our shoulders and he goes, hey guys, I think for the late show uh, we're just going to split the time between you guys. So he's like, you guys both do uh, 35 minutes or something like that. And it didn't seem to phase Eric at all. He was like, okay, that sounds good. And so, uh, do the late show. I kill even harder and he has even a harder time and walks like almost everybody in the crowd. Um, So needless to say, the drive back to the hotel that night after the show was a bit awkward, but uh, so I'm laying in bed in the morning and my phone rings and apparently at the hotel, they didn't have our names on the rooms. It just said comedian on each room. So he calls my room and I answered the phone and I hear the room manager, this guy, Gary, He was like, Eric? And I was like, no, this is Mark. And he goes, oh, do you know Eric's room number? And I gave him his room number. And then there was a bit of silence for a second. I said, is everything okay? And he goes, "Uh," goes, yeah, we're about to fire Eric, and you're going to be the headliner tonight, and I'm going to feature for you, so get your shit together. And then he just hung up the phone, and I was like, what the fuck? So I got down to the club that night, and I talked to Gary. I said, so how did it go with Eric? And he goes, he wasn't too happy about it. He goes, he said, why don't don't I just feature for Mark? That way I can still make a couple bucks, and and I don't have to go home right now. And the owner of the club said, "Uh, no, that's okay. I don't need a dead spot in the middle of my show or something like that. And sent him home. When I got to the club, like, the bartenders and the waitresses and stuff were all, like, congratulating me. Like, I had done some great feat by being so good that I got the headliner fired. And I was trying to explain to him, like, you know, that I wasn't happy about it. Like, I've been fired off of a week before. It's, like, the worst thing ever. And I started telling this group of people the Lisa Lampanelli story from Rochester, New York. Because years later, it was still with me as like a horrible experience. So I tell this story and they're all like, wow, that's that's surprising. I always thought she was a nice girl or whatever. So I just get done telling that story. Everybody's just chatting about it. And the owner of the club comes over and he puts his arm around me and he goes, uh, he goes, you better do a good job in the first show. Lisa Lampanelli's coming to watch you. And everybody just started laughing, and I was like, yeah, fuck off. And he's like, what are you talking about? I go, you didn't just hear the story I just told to these people? And he's like, no, what story? So I reiterated the story again to him, and his eyes got all wide, and he's like, man, that is so crazy. He goes, she just called, and I told her who was headlining, and she said that she was going to come in with her fiancé and a couple friends to watch the show. And I was like, what the fuck? So I do that show uh, and I headline it and it's like the best set of the week, like just destroy the place. And I'm out there selling my shit and her and her group of friends come up to the table and she's like, I got to just tell you, she's like, I usually don't like, you know, the typical road comic that works in clubs across the country. She's like, but there's something about you. Like the stuff you talk about and your point of view—it's really, really funny, and I really enjoyed it. I just wanted to let you know that. And like just before, I was about to like unload on her. Like, do you remember me, motherfucker? You remember firing me? You know, the owner of the club came over and kind of redirected her. I guess they were going to talk about some kind of concert series at the club or the theater in town or something like that. So I didn't really have an opportunity for the told-you-so moment, but I still felt good, you know. I felt like there was a little bit of vindication there, you know, that she obviously doesn't remember me, and she thinks I'm a funny comic, so it's, you know, I, I knew it was a lot about that I was just doing too well in front of her in Rochester. That's why she had me fired, but that was kind of vindication that she really thought I was funny. And she was probably threatened by that. So I was like, I kind of made peace with it after that. I was like, you know, that's not going to be a story that defines me anymore. So usually that's where the story ends. And this is the new part of it, which is so fucking weird. So uh, a couple months ago, I, uh, I got the offer to come and tape uh, Gotham Comedy Live in New York City which is on AXE TV it's a show that used to be on Comedy Central and now it's on X TV it's still a, you know a big time thing that people look at in the comedy business as an accomplishment so I was really really excited to do it and I went out there and uh, I shot I shot my set which was so much fun and then we were kind of standing off to the side after we shot our uh, our set And the bouncer or like the door guy, this big guy with a goatee, he goes, "Uh, you're from Minnesota? And I said, yeah. And then he just looks at me and he goes, Tucson, Arizona. And I go, yeah, I've been to Tucson, Arizona. And he's like, laughs comedy club. And I'm like, yeah, that's where I play in Tucson, Arizona. And he goes, man, I knew I knew you. He goes, Do you remember me? And I go, No, I don't at all. I'm sorry. And he goes, Me and my fiance at the time, Lisa Lampanelli, came and saw you at that comedy club. And I was like, Get the fuck out of here. He was like, Yeah, man, we loved you. We thought you were so funny. So then I start telling him the story, the whole thing. <laughs> I start telling him about Rochester. And I tell him about Tucson, and I and we were just chatting about the whole thing. And he goes, honestly, man. He goes, if I called her up tomorrow, because they were divorced at this time, um, but I guess they were still really good friends. He goes, honestly, man. He goes, if I called her up tomorrow and told her the story about Rochester in 2004, he goes, I doubt she would even remember it. He goes, from what I know. He goes, that time was kind of rough for her. She was going through a lot of stuff, like emotionally and mentally and stuff. And and she had kind of a short fuse and and was depressed and all this kind of stuff. And I was like, so that gave me a little bit of comfort as well to know that, you know, maybe it just wasn't, you know, maybe it was more than what you see you know you just at the time I was kind of blinded like you know fuck this lady she just fired me off of a show like she's got to be the worst person ever and it's one of those things you know where sometimes you see somebody having a bad day and you don't necessarily know all this all the stories behind it like what's going on you know And obviously back then from what he was telling me that she was having a really bad time. And it kind of made me feel bad for her in a sense. Like, you know, um, I had told that story so many times in so many green rooms to so many comedians. And for a while I actually uh, held a grudge against um, the comic who came in and replaced me, you know, kind of thinking that he had a hand in me getting fired because somebody had made a passing comment that he had said, uh, because she had been complaining. This is what I heard and it's all hearsay, but somebody said that she was complaining about uh, my act or whatever. And he said, well, why don't you just get rid of him and hire me? and I'll do the gig, you know. And years later, I ran into him, and, and he was mad at me because he had kept hearing the story of him going on the road and him coming into the comedy club in Rochester and, and getting a comic fired and taking a spot. But the thing that I heard when I would tell the story and say who was the comic that replaced me, people would be like, oh, that guy does that all the time. And I was like, really? And I heard it so many times from so many different comics that I started to believe it, that, like, that was his thing, where if he had a weekend off, he would come to the comedy club and he would sit with the headliner and, like, talk shit about the feature and be like, you know what, if you get rid of this guy, I'll do it and I'll kick some of my money back to you type of thing. All hearsay, like, so I ran into him years later on the road. We were working a club together or I stopped in to do a guest set, and he was there, and, like, he flipped out when I walked in. He was like, I have been waiting to talk to you for for years. And I was like, yeah, let's get into this, you know. And he laid out his whole side of it, and it seemed believable, you know, And, and he seemed so passionate about it, about making sure that I knew that he didn't get me fired, that he was just kind of there, and they decided, like, well, we've got this other guy here. We might as well get rid of this comic that she doesn't like, and we'll just put him on stage, you know. So it was nice to kind of bury that hatchet as well, you know, because I, I felt bad about talking behind his back about his stuff and, and just telling the story I told The story to a comic in canada and he kind of you know gave me a glimpse into his experience with lisa lampanelli he said he was doing a show with her and came in the green room and and she was crying in the green room and she was just having a really tough time and and like hearing that from her ex-husband and uh and like getting a a real glimpse into kind of what her mindset was back then when she fired me, really, after everything, I feel like gave me full closure on the entire story. You know, we talked about her and her jokes and their relationship and, and just life on the road and laughed and joked about how crazy the whole situation was and and how weird that, like, Lisa Lampinelli has kind of Define not defined my career, but it's been like this weird, like, uh, like milestone, like not milestones, but just like mile markers in my career, you know, every five to eight years, another piece of the story is added on and it's just so strange, you know it's like 2004 2010 2015 i mean it's i wonder what's going to happen in 2020 you know i mean am i am i going to actually end up working with her again and and uh, she offers me some big opportunity and and the story finally gets a huge big closure or something you know this comic who affected me so early in my career by firing me off her show actually has a hand in my success or something like that you know but i just kind of feel like this might be the end of it you know but you never know i mean every time it, it flies as a fleeting thought out of my brain something comes back around to remind me of lisa lampanelli and and the crazy ride that, uh, the story is, has gotten throughout the years. And it's just one of those prolific stories of my comedy career. And I always love sharing it with people because it is so strange and so weird, man. But, uh, yeah, I appreciate you guys tuning in and, uh, you can get this podcast at pod iTunes, Stitcher, and, uh, check out my website, large drunk man.com. I just did, uh, updated dates, a lot of local dates and, uh, A lot of fun gigs coming up, so check that out at largedrunkman.com and tune in next time when we talk about Who Knows.
1: You guys are cool. Are you guys okay? This crew is having a f***ing f***ed up time. Look at these older ladies. They're like, she is f***ed up. How you doing, older dude? You okay? Cool, man, you're all right. You gonna bang after the show? You gonna wrap that piece? Nice. Have sex later. puppy. get a little hot sauce on the chimichanga. <laughs> Pikachu, fill the walk. <laughs> I love you guys, because you really get it. You're cool as hell. Cause you don't want to get pissed off. You know what pisses me off, black guy. You'll understand. What's your real name? What's your name, brother? Come on, tell me. I'm not your parole officer. Talk to me. He's laughing, people. Don't worry. I see teeth and eyes. We don't have a problem. To get all nervous, and I got the colored guy. Because that's what's so funny. My boyfriend loves all my jokes. He cracks up at them. But the other day I was promoting my show on the radio and some white bitch emails me and she's like, you know, you're funny, but stop making fun of black people. Listen, bitch. I've got one. Nobody loves black people more than Lisa Lampinelli. Nobody loves black men more often than Lisa Lampinelli. I've got one in my apartment right now! Unsupervised
0: <laughs>
1: with all my furniture. My costume jewelry. Well I can't leave the real shit, Leroy, you know. You see you ain't seen a rock this big since you were smoking it. <laughs> <laughs> you Hector, you smuggle drugs in your ass. Don't fart, Chayden will OD.